You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The key ways in which organizations pick up on these issues today tends to be through face-to-face contact and direct interaction from one person to another in an office. And when that doesn't exist anymore, I think organizations just need to be thinking creatively right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Tom Miller from ClearForce. We're going to be talking about continuous discovery in the workplace and the human side, a protecting your business. And we are back. Joe, before we get to our stories, last week we opened a bit of a Pandora's box, I fear. Oh, did when we? When we talked about misuse of various words. Right. Uh, <laughs> got a lot of folks writing in. Uh, one person in particular, uh, a friend of the show, his name is John. Uh-huh. Uh, he sent us a nice little list of things here. I'll just go through quickly. We see if we see how we feel about these things. Right. He said, flaunt does not mean flout. Right. I'm on board with that. Yep, me too. Uh, he said, to beg the question is to commit an informal fallacy in which an argument's conclusion figures as one of the argument's premises. It does not mean to raise the question. That is 100% correct. John is absolutely correct here. This is one of the things that makes <laughs> me crazy. I hate yeah. this, Dave. I really do. Okay. And yeah. when people say, to, well, that begs the question this. No, that's not what begging the question is. <laughs> Yeah, I got called on this once by uh, a listener a long time ago, and uh, this person had actually created a website called some, it was something like to beg the question dot org or something, right. and, it, and it had the description of why everyone's using this wrong. Something cannot be more unique or most unique. To be unique is to be the only thing of its kind, and that doesn't admit of degrees. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, that's, that's true. That's good. Yeah, there's a whole uh, segment on West Wing about this, where President Bartlett uh, reminds someone that uh, can't be uh, some, that unique is a singularity. I suppose. So, yes. So I'm on I'm on board with that one. All right. Here's the last one. John writes in and he says, "And we should die in the last ditch before admitting that data is a singular noun. It is plural. The singular is datum. If people want a mass noun to do the work of a singular data, they should try information, which seems." close enough. My initial response is Lieutenant Commander Data is a singular noun. Right. <laughs> That's his name, though. That's a proper name. <laughs> uh, I, I don't generally use datum. I, I will say a piece of data, right? Yeah, or, a bit of a, data. A data yeah. point, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. That, that way point or piece or bit are the singular and data is, it's the object of the preposition. But I will disagree with information being synonymous with data or a datum. Data is just a large collection of, 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 of data. I mean, there's really no other way to describe it. Information is what happens <laughs> when you process data, right? Okay. So you could look at a big thing of statistics and say, that's the data. But the information is, let's say you're looking at the weight of a population, right? The weight mm-hmm. of the population compared to their height. So you look at that data and you can extract the body mass index of that population. The body mass index is the information. All the weights and height are the data. Well, here's my take on this. First of all, I wonder how many people are even familiar with the word datum. 
And the, where I always come down on these arguments, is there clarity in meaning? Is anyone going to be confused by your use of that word? Mm-hmm. And I would argue that the modern use of data, which includes using it as a singular noun, there's no loss in clarity. People know what you mean. And language evolves. So popular usages eventually become the correct usage because it switches over to being the normal usage of something. So I understand originalists, but right. uh, <laughs> but for me, clarity is the number one judgment here in, in my mind. I come down more on the originalist side of this. Um, <laughs> I know you do. I particularly know you do, Joe. with things like literally, oh. <laughs> I know, Joe, and that's why we love you. Right. right well, uh, that, that's enough uh, on that, uh, the thing that has absolutely nothing to do with our show. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> let's, let's move on to our stories. Uh, what do you have for us this week, Joe? Dave, I have a creepy story that comes out of Singapore. It's a little bit old. It's old and creepy, kind of like us. <laughs> And um, it's about four years old, but I have not heard this story before, and I thought it would be a good story to discuss on this show. Okay. And the paper was The Straits Time out of Singapore, and they called the woman in the story Melissa, and that's a pseudonym. Or it's not a real name. She was 20 years old when this happened. Hmm. And one afternoon, Melissa received a Facebook Messenger message from a female friend. The message over this Facebook platform asked Melissa for help with a breast cancer project that this friend was working on. And I'm sure I'm not spoiling this for our listeners, but Melissa's friend's account had been hacked, right? And there's mm. there's some, some guy on the other end of this. This malicious actor said they needed photos of the front and side view of Melissa's breasts for an online project. Mm. Now, here's why I think this is relevant more today than it was four years ago. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of different machine learning projects out there that are taking information that you might not be able to suss diagnoses from and developing ways to find diagnoses. Like there's there's a research project at Hopkins with Katie Henry and Suchi Saria where they're just looking at the available sensor data and they've been able to identify when a patient has sepsis before they're symptomatic with a with a very high confidence interval. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. There was the story we had a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about how we were able to train pigeons to find breast cancer cells because they're not encumbered by the idea of other pieces. They just they're just looking for the information about the breast cancer and not the normal tissue. And and mice also was a theoretical solution to vocal fakes, fake vocals. So there's all these different kind of machine learning things out there. So I can absolutely envision a machine learning project that takes pictures of healthy breasts and breasts that are known to be cancerous and attempts to build a model that can diagnose breast cancer from a picture, because that would be incredibly useful, right? Yeah, it's plausible. It is plausible. I don't know if it's possible, but somebody is probably going to do research like this. So it sure. makes sense now more than ever. But four years ago, it really made sense to Melissa as well. And she went ahead and she submitted some pictures of her breasts to this attacker. Now, the attacker also incentivized her with, with the promise of a new cell phone and $600. You know, study participants are getting a cell phone and $600. So she sent the pictures. But now, now, Melissa thought she was sending this to a friend of hers. A friend of hers, correct. Right, right. So a she thought she was helping a friend and also... Uh, helping with medical research, and she was going to get some money. Correct. But after she sends the photos to this attacker, who she doesn't know is an attacker at this point in time, the attacker continually messages her back asking for pictures that included her face. Why? Well, because he's a pervert. 
Right? <laughs> he's, he's a lowlife. He's out there collecting right. images. Of, <laughs> of course he is. And this, right. this was <laughs> – this was the tip-off for Melissa, right? This is like that's, – that's her question too. Why do you need pictures of my face? Because mm-hmm. I will tell you this. In a clinical situation, there's, there are photos out there of, of various body parts. It doesn't matter what the body part is. The face is always obscured mm-hmm. right? for, the, mm-hmm. for the patient's privacy. Right. Uh, unless it's something about the face, unless it's like some kind of dermatology study or something that's unique to the face. But if it's not yeah. about your face, your face is not in that picture. So when the guy asks for her, a picture of that includes her face, that's when she gets alerted to this. So then what she does is she texts her friend over SMS and says, hey, have you been sending me messages on Facebook Messenger? And the friend says, no, I haven't. So now mm. she is she's realizing she gets a sinking feeling and she's like, oh, what have I done? I should have thought yeah. twice before doing that now. She did not just accept this, right? What she did was she worked with the owner of the hacked account, and they identified another victim who had also sent pictures to this attacker, and they filed a police report, and according to this article in this paper, the police managed to establish the identity of the suspect who was arrested. Excellent. Wow. It's good. But I wanted to talk about this because this premise seems very plausible to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many women would be comfortable doing this, even for medical research. But if you ask enough of them, some of them are going to say yes, right? Yeah. You know, then if you start asking for pictures that include their face, I mean, maybe that'll tip them off, but maybe it won't. So I would like to make people aware of this, that this is something that can and actually has happened. Here's some things in the article that I found interesting or more disturbing. On the breast cancer claim, she said of herself, how could I have believed that? I know you can't tell if someone has breast cancer from a photo alone. And again, I think it's a plausible ploy. I think it's Mm -hmm. very believable. And I I would not be surprised to actually see this kind of research being done in a legitimate setting. And then another thing she said is that her family and her boyfriend scalded her for trusting someone so easily. Mm. And then, you know, this is what happens. You can't shame the victim or blame the victim here, right? Right, She was the victim of somebody going after her and and a malicious actor. Don't shame the victim or blame the victim. This is one of the biggest messages of this show is stop the victim blaming. Instead, go after the perpetrator. Uh, And finally, she said in here, uh, this is a great quote. I still feel so angry at the scammer. I'll punch his face if I ever find out who he is. Uh, we certainly don't condone violence, but in this case, it seems like a reasonable response. Right, yeah, I, I can't blame her for feeling that way. <laughs> no, no, it, no, it's an understandable impulse yeah. uh, for sure. Yeah, and it seems to me this whole thing hinges on the initial trust that she had for her friend. Absolutely. Which she thought she was dealing with a friend, and, and that's that's one of the things here. It, it reminds me also, I remember, oh gosh, probably decades ago, someone uh, passed on the wisdom to me. They said... Never put anything in an email that you wouldn't put on a postcard. Right. I think that applies to a lot of this sort of thing as well, unless you are, you know, really confident in the security of uh, the communications channel that you're using. Better safe than sorry, right? I would agree. Yep, 100%. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, boy, that, that is an interesting story and uh, certainly one to uh, to be on the uh, alert for, to share, share with your friends and family to uh, warn them about. My story is uh, a little uh, more up to date. This is uh, just in the past few days, this uh, story from uh, ZDNet, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, titled Rare Bad USB Attack Detected in the Wild Against U.S. Hospitality Provider. Hmm. So let me set the stage for you here, Joe. Imagine you are at work, and let's say you work at uh, a hotel. Let's say you're the manager of a 
local uh, local hotel, uh, maybe from a, one of the large chains or something like that. And you get a letter in the mail, and you open it up, and it's from Best Buy, which uh, here in the U.S. is a large uh, retailer of electronics. Right. A popular store, big box store as they call it. Uh, you open it up, and there's a letter from Best Buy. It has the Best Buy logo on it. And also inside is a $50 gift card. Really? So this letter thanks you for being a regular customer of Best Buy, uh, offers you this gift card. But it also says that uh, they've included a USB thumb drive, which is sure enough is there in the package. Mm -hmm. And that thumb drive includes a list of the items that you can use this $50 gift card on. Ah, that's very clever. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, I'm sure everyone is uh, is a, a step ahead of me here. The the thumb drive is actually infected. If you plug that thumb drive into your system, you're going to be infected with uh, some sort of malware, and uh, they will own your computer. What's interesting about this is that we haven't seen this sort of thing in a while. This is an expensive attack. Sending out an actual letter, uh, yep. gathering up a gift card, and including a USB drive. Yeah, the gift card is free, though. Because you can just go into Best Buy and take a bunch of gift cards off the shelf and walk out with them. Because if they're not activated, it doesn't cost you a dime. Right, right. Nobody will stop you from doing that. It's not really a big problem. Uh, Because in order to activate the gift card, you have to go to the cash register and and give them the number. So I would suspect that this gift card is either previously used or was never activated. Yeah, that makes sense. But, of course, the actual USB drive itself, I mean, there'd be no reason for that to be a part of this. If if this were legit, they would just say, log on to our website and choose whatever you'd like to buy. Right, right? because a, a Best Buy gift card is not limited to the number of items you can purchase, right? It's it's You can Correct. purchase anything at a, at a Best Buy with a Best Buy gift card. Yeah. Now, in this case, uh, this was sent to uh, a hospitality uh, organization. I'm going to guess a hotel, something like that. And the staff uh, did not fall for it. They, they they knew something was up, and they sent it in, and uh, they reported it to their local uh, law enforcement people. And uh, they reached out to Kaspersky Labs, who was the, the folks who reported this. So in this case, uh, a happy ending, but who knows how many of these were sent out. Uh, and it's certainly one to be alert about. Okay, so I'm reading down the article, and this this USB device is actually not a a, a, a thumb drive. It's actually something called a rubber ducky, uh, which is a essentially a keyboard device. It's, it registers itself as an input device, so it's hmm. not like you even need a vulnerability on your machine that some software has to exploit. This thing becomes a a keyboard as soon as you plug it in, and it starts entering commands. It opens up a PowerShell which is a very powerful administrative tool that most people don't need to have access to. But then that PowerShell script goes out and downloads the malware. And there's very little that can be done to protect that computer once the user plugs that in, if that user has access to PowerShell. So one of the, the, the only administrative thing I'd say here is disable access to PowerShell for people that don't need it. Mm -hmm. Other than that, uh, it's going to work. And if you put this in on your home computer where you're the administrator, it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, don't don't plug in things into your computer if you don't know where they came from. Absolutely, <laughs> especially general. Was, and this one purports to be from Best Buy, which is preying on your trust of Best Buy. Right, right. right. Well, and you and of course you're greed because you you know you're going to get something free from Best Buy. Right. So uh, lots of elements in play here. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is my story this week. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. <laughs> 
Our catch of the day this week comes from BBC reporter Jonah Fisher. He's at Jonah Fisher BBC on Twitter. And he was recently uh, targeted by a Facebook Messenger scam. He decided to uh, play along with the scam and string them along a little bit. Uh, Joe, I tell you what, uh, why don't you play the part of uh, Jonah and I will play the part of the scammer. And it goes like this. How are you doing? Hi, Peter. Or is it Rachel? It's good to hear from you. I have great news to share with you. Guess what? New baby? I was wondering if you have also been contacted by the CFDA. I don't even know who they are. I thought you heard about the program. They helped and support people from 25 to 90 years with bonus winning offer from the Financial Domestic Assistance Agency to help people maintain the standard of living, and I thought you have heard of it already. And? I'm so excited because I am one of the lucky winner to win a sum, 150,000 cash. I even thought you have been contacted already because I saw your name among the winner list when the CFDA agent brought cash to me, and I wonder if you have got yours? No. Really, I should give you the agent text line or page link so that you will go claim and get yours? I'll call you. Okay, here is the agent link. I'll just call you. Easier. Click on the link and like the page and comment on the agent photo that you haven't got your winning money yet? Calling. Pick up. I have speaker problem with my foe. I'll call the landline. Oh, okay. In fact... I'll pop around. You're only next door. I would have loved to call you, but my lawyer just collect my cell phone because many of my friends call me to give them money, and it's really pissing my lawyer off. That is why he collected it. Answer the door. I'm not at home right now. I can see you are in the kitchen. I'd recognize that hat anywhere. Have you messaged the agents yet? No, I want to talk about the holiday first. Look, you are a lame scam artist. Get a life. And it ends there. <laughs> right. So this is this is great. Jonah has taken this guy. First off, it's it's interesting when he says, I'll call you. And then the guy says, I'm having a problem with my speaker on my phone. We hear this. This is a common theme in these scams as well. Right. I, I've undergone, undergone some surgery on my throat and I can't talk right now. Uh, right. Right. I can't get my phone. And then he goes to my lawyers collected my phone because people are trying to get money from me. Right. <laughs> so my phone's not only broken, I don't have it. Right. Well, how are you messaging me right now? Right. Right. How right. are you doing this? Maybe yeah, you're on your yeah. computer because this is Facebook Messenger. But uh, it's an obvious scam. And I'm glad Jonah shared this on Twitter. Thank you, Jonah. Yep. 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 Nice to uh, string them along. Agreed. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, my conversation with Tom Miller from Clearforce. We're going to be talking about this notion of continuous discovery in the workplace and also the human side of protecting your business. And we are back. Uh, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Tom Miller. He is from a company called Clearforce, and they do something called continuous discovery in the workplace. We're going to talk about that a little bit and also the human side of protecting your business. Here's my conversation with Tom Miller. Virtually every office today has levels of remote working going on, if not in its entirety, for large portions of the employee base. And I think that that's changed a lot for organizations. I think you have some organizations that it's in their DNA. So they're perhaps a gig economy company where they're used to contractors or even employees that are working remotely out with consumers and not part of the brick and mortar establishment or They're just a business that naturally has telecommuting as a core component of how they operate. But then today, you have many organizations that just aren't used to that. And so they fundamentally have to change the way their workforce shows up 
every day. And you've got a lot of organizations that are figuring out how to create an environment that's not only productive, but is also producing the level of culture and emotional safety and stability and support that I think a lot of people are really looking for right now. Well, how do organizations go about striking that balance? It seems to me like there are a lot of different elements at play here. You start with the human side. You start with the employee. And I think that becomes the critical part. Are the individuals on your team in a position that they are emotionally and both from a, a personal and a, and a work perspective in a situation where they can be productive and feel good about what's going on around them. I mean, nobody's feeling great about what's going on around us right now, but in a position where they can be focused um, and positive and really in a position where they can ride through this virus environment um, and hopefully come out at the end of this in the right spot, again, both from a personal and professional perspective. And so I think beginning with the person, beginning with with understanding that they're in a situation that's good for them. And then I think from there, you build upon that to expand the good for them, good for the team, good for the organization. And it's, it's complex because, you know, you're talking about health and wellness, you're talking about productivity, and then you're also layering in here risk management from an organizational perspective. In terms of, again, balancing that, when you're calling on your employees to work from home and using their own resources, their home internet connections and so forth, I suppose maybe you have to tread lightly when it comes to the amount of monitoring that you're going to do compared to what you would do in the workplace. Yeah, it may be. I mean, I think that the first objective will always be understanding the stress levels of the individual. You know, there'll be plenty of technology and digital monitoring that can be enabled to ensure that there's information security throughout the process and the transactions and the communication with remote employees. And that that's essential. I mean, to protect the intellectual property of organizations, to protect customer confidential information, financial data, et cetera. But then when you think again about the, the human side of this, there tends to be you know, different elements. I mean, one is simply distraction. So are employees or would employees be making mistakes they would not normally make because they're fundamentally distracted and they're fundamentally stressed? And from a leadership perspective, do you have a way of, of identifying that and being able to identify individuals within a team uh, that are more more subject to that, you know. And then the second piece is anytime an individual becomes disengaged from their colleagues, from the organization, quite frankly, from a community. Anytime somebody becomes disengaged and others don't notice, bad things can happen. And so, if somebody is under stress, if somebody is disengaged for a long period of time, and the organization doesn't have a, a means to to understand that, to discover it, and to be able to effectively address it, I think that's where a lot of organizational risk will come out. So it's not to say that monitoring of an individual needs to be fundamentally different. I think you have to acknowledge the fact that 
the key interacting points or the key ways in which organizations pick up on these issues today tends to be through face-to-face -face contact and direct interaction from one person to another in an office. And when that doesn't exist anymore, I think organizations just need to be thinking creatively right now about how do they pick up on those red flags or sensors Maybe in the same way that they would if they were able to walk the floor, how do you do it today? And again, I think that's where you have to look to technology to try to find capability to put you in the same position from being informed and understanding and discovering some of the risks that I'm talking about. So as a team leader, for example, should I be uh, you know, making virtual rounds with my employees and my colleagues, you know, checking in with them electronically, having uh, audio or video chats just to take the temperature of everyone uh, virtually, so to speak? 100%. I think every leader's got to increase the level of communication, which may naturally or, or informally occur, almost without, you know, in an unconscious way where you're just naturally going to have some conversations, now you may have to schedule those checkpoints. Now you may have to set up a daily, a weekly, just more formalized engagement at an individual level and at a team level to be able to pick that up. All right, Joe, uh, what do you think? Interesting stuff, huh? Interesting stuff. I've, I've got some, some points from this interview. Uh, one, the emotional and psychological health of employees is very key to maintain at this point. And I've been working from home now for about a week and a half, maybe two weeks now. Oh, I don't know. Jeez, how long have I been working? No, I don't <laughs> it's even hard remember. to remember, right? It's, it's all blurring it's all, together. <laughs> it is all blurring together. And I said that in a meeting the other day, that it's all yeah. starting to blur together. And I'm, I'm losing track of the time. I think that's going to have some kind of impact on me. When he talks about the employees using their own resources, I really don't have a problem using my own internet connection to do work from home in this kind of situation. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think I would be okay with a similar level of monitoring or more monitoring from my home internet connection. I think that that would be uh, something that would, would kind of upset me. Now, at work, I'm on a different network than the Hopkins network because I work for the, for the Information Security Institute. So we actually have our own segmented piece of the network that doesn't even touch the Hopkins network. So when you're on okay. our network to get to the Hopkins network, you have to go out to the internet and come in through a firewall. Interesting. Um, so I, I don't have a lot of those restrictions as well. There are websites I can't go to on the Hopkins network that I can go to on the MSSI network. For example, if I'm on the Hopkins network, I cannot go to the Hack5 website, which is a, a manufacturer of hacking devices like the, the Wi-Fi Pineapple, penetration testing tools, really. But our security team has said that site is a hacking site. It's on a list of hacking sites. So uh, people on the Hopkins network are not allowed to access it. But on my right. site, I can't. I can access that. Yeah, so, that makes sense. Yeah, because I actually have a legitimate business need to access that. Right. <laughs> right. Sure. I purchased sure. Wi-Fi pineapples for our students. But if I was subject to similar restrictions here at home, I think I would find that bothersome. I also would have concerns about monitoring my traffic on my personal network. I, I, I wouldn't want that to happen. If they were going to have that kind of level of monitoring, I would like to be consistently connected with a VPN from my home location. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's important to to be able to separate home from work even right. when you're at home. That's correct. The other piece of that equation is I would have to have a piece of employer provided hardware that I could work on. I'm if if you're going to monitor me, you're going to provide me with the hardware to to work on and a VPN connection that keeps your traffic separate from my traffic. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. that would be a requirement I had. One of the things I'm finding is that while I'm here, I'm working longer hours than I did when I was there. 
Hmm. I don't know that that's making me more productive or less productive. I, I kind of have a feeling I'm getting about the same amount done, but I am definitely putting in longer hours. Interesting. Distraction is a big problem, and so is disengagement. And he doesn't really say this in the interview, but I, I'll tell you, disengagement can lead to problems for you in terms of intellectual property theft and things of that nature. When when you get an employee who's disengaged and has started looking elsewhere, and if they're in your organization long enough, they might be more willing to do some damage that they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do. I'm not saying mm-hmm. people are malicious. I'm just saying this could happen. Yeah, maybe that temptation would be there that they otherwise wouldn't have. Right. I mean, because you, you, you tend to feel like, hey, nobody cares. I'm, I don't see anybody on a regular basis. Which kind of brings me to my next point. I had a manager who actually has since passed away. His name was Don Monroe, and he had a great way of managing. He called it MBWA, which was management by walking around, where where he would come down the cubicle rows and he would talk to our section supervisor and and to us and just, just talk. I'll give you an example of one of the things that drew him in. One day I was reading The Code Book by Simon Singh, which is a great book. If anybody uh, is looking for a good book to introduce you to cryptography, that is a great place to start. Simon Singh mm. writes wonderful books, and uh, the code book was the first book of his I read. Uh, and I got to the chapter on the Enigma machine, and I was diagramming the Enigma machine and showing my section supervisor how it worked. And Don walked by, and he looked down the aisle, and he says, that looks like an Enigma machine. And he came down, and he just started talking to us about it, right? Yeah, you know, It was just a conversation. Yeah, we weren't doing work, but we were talking about something technological and germane to our field. And it interested him. And he was present there. And you do not get that. That is much more difficult to get when you have a remote workforce. Right, right. Yeah, those water cooler conversations. Exactly. And one of the things that Tom said in in this interview was that maybe set up a daily meeting where you get to see people. And I'll tell you, we have a daily meeting with our organization, actually with Computer Science, Information Security Institute and Computer Science attend the same uh, stand-up meeting every day at 9.30. And that has helped. I, I Initially, I was like, why am I going to this? I, I don't think I need to be here. But that meeting has helped me a lot. Hmm. I've found that that is great just to see everybody because it's a Zoom meeting. So we have, uh, we have pictures of each other, video of each other, and it's very helpful. Helps keep yeah. me in touch with everybody. I think it's a good tip for sure. Uh, yeah, I think you have to just ha- you just have to be deliberate about these things right now because they're right. they're not going to happen accidentally. So if you want it to happen, you got to plan for it. No, that's a good point. They are not going to happen accidentally. It's going to have yeah. to be something that you're going to have to do in an office setting. They will happen accidentally. Yeah, exactly. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 